everybody needs the ability to participate in this digital world that we all take for granted. And the more people who are on the network, the better. That's the network effect, right? The network improves when we've got people, when we've got everybody connected. Welcome to episode 473 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Marcatilio McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, I joined communications manager Jess Delfiaco and senior researcher and editor Sean Gonsalves to talk with Christopher Ali, an associate professor in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. Christopher discusses his new book from MIT Press titled Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity. During the conversation, we talk about the communities Christopher visited while writing his book and some of the local success stories he heard. We talk about why the concept of rural deserves a more nuanced definition than it is usually afforded and how high quality affordable broadband access can revitalize rural economic development in direct and indirect ways. We end by talking about where and why federal efforts to improve rural broadband infrastructure have fallen short and how local solutions have shown the way forward. Now here's the show with Christopher, Jess, and Sean. Today I am joined by my colleagues Rye Marcatilio McCracken and Sean Gonsalves, who are senior researchers with ILSR's community broadband team. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jess. Good to be here. And Sean has been on the show before, but Rye, is this your Building Local Power debut? It is, yep. Very exciting. All right. Uh, That means we have to haze you just a little bit. And we are joined by Christopher Ali, who is an associate professor in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Listeners might remember you from an episode you were on earlier this year, where we did mention that you would have a book coming out in a little while. And the book is now here. It's called Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity which is very exciting. Uh, And I think we can just start there. So you want to talk a little bit about the writing process for this book? How did you approach doing the research for it? Who did you talk to? Yeah, um, so this is a book about five years in the making. And when I when I started it, I mean, I think everyone on, on this podcast and probably all of the listeners know that when you start thinking and learning about broadband, that learning curve is huge. So I didn't even tell anyone I was writing a book about broadband for about a year. So I could just kind of get myself, I don't know, up to speed with with all of the, the the technical and technological aspects of broadband deployment. I started off, originally this was going to be a book, well, the book is about policy. It's about the failure of policy to provide broadband in rural America. So I did about two or three years of really deep policy dives, really wonky stuff, which is, I mean, kind of the stuff I love doing. But in about 2018, I started realizing that maybe there's a chance that not everyone thinks policy is as exciting as I think it is. So I might need to humanize my policy work. And with the help of some amazing colleagues and some amazing organizations, my hound dog, Tuna, and I embarked on a 4,000-mile road trip across the United States, mainly in the Midwest. We called it the Rural Broadband Road Trip, to put a human face on rural broadband, both the kind of failure of policy to provide rural broadband, but then also how communities were connecting themselves in the absence of a lot of federal leadership in this space. And of course, so much has changed since I began this book five years ago, and so much has changed since the Rural Broadband Road Trip. But really, the book is a combination of policy analysis, and then also that that, that human face, that human story, and those community stories that are so important to kind of this conversation about broadband. You know, thinking about the human face of, of broadband issues, could you just point to a couple 
of things you saw in communities that illustrate either the like what broadband has done to change people's lives in that community or what the lack is and what could change if there was better connectivity for folks? Yeah, um, chapter four of the book is is entirely dedicated to a place called Rock County, Minnesota. I spent a bunch of time in Rock County, located in the uh, southwest pocket of, of the state. Rock County has 99.93% fiber to the home pass by, maybe not take rate, but, you know, one of the most connected counties in, in Minnesota and, and certainly one of the least populated. So it was a really interesting kind of case study for me, like, how did this happen? And, and some of the vital things are, I mean, they have this amazing county administrator named Kyle Older, who became this digital champion, and he recruited members of his board of supervisors, they got together, and it also demonstrates how vital it is for communities to understand themselves. What the digital champions in Rock County wanted was they realized everyone wanted fiber to the home and they weren't going to compromise on, on maybe kind of a fiber to the tower situation or a fixed wireless network or kind of a ring. They really were invested in fiber to the home. So they actually passed up some opportunities that came their way early in 2009, 2010. And they were waiting for what I call in the book, a dance partner who would actually provide the fiber to the home. They found that in a cooperative, a telephone cooperative out of South Dakota Advanced Communications. And they got a $5 million grant from the state of Minnesota through the amazing broadband office that, that y'all have in Minnesota. And then they actually also bonded themselves for a million dollars to their wind turbine tax, which allowed them to then, you know, kind of offer up $6 million then plus um, another six million from advanced communications. And now they are one of the most connected communities in Minnesota. And, and not only that, but it's it, it's attracted businesses. It's certainly lowered prices. I mean, I think we've all heard stories of, of folks who you know have to t- joggle, uh, jostle between various cell phone subscriptions and satellite subscriptions. I heard of one radio station there who was in Laverne, which is the county seat that was paying thousands of dollars a month for broadband. Now their bill is 80 bucks a month. There, there was talk of some major economic development going on there as well. And, and, and so I think Rock County really demonstrates both the importance of digital champions, the importance of communities kind of understanding for themselves their own needs, their own digital and, and communicatory needs, and then working with an amazing state like Minnesota and a cooperative to make it happen. So the importance of partnerships as well. So it really is this great story that I, that I hope I do justice to in the fourth chapter of Farm Fresh Broadband. You know, I, I lived in Marshall, Minnesota for about four years, which is just a little ways northeast of Rock County. And we had wireline broadband from Vast and I think Charter, and it was expensive and it was slow and it was pretty unreliable. I would think it would go out relatively regularly. And uh, I didn't even know this project in, in Rock County existed. And it, it brings me to this question, which is one of the kind of high level arguments you have going on in the book and this idea of the network effect and why it's important not only to connect everyone, but to connect everyone with equal service. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think this is one of the major struggles going on with federal policy right now is, is, is it just about getting the unconnected and underconnected something or is it about getting them where, where, where the place where we all take for granted is, right? You know, like high performance, high speed broadband, um, ideally low cost, although my internet bill certainly is not low cost. The, the idea being that everybody deserves, in my, in my opinion, in my research, you know, high performance, affordable broadband. I think we all agree with that on this call because we, we can't start creating. And what we have right now is kind of the second class, second tier of digital connectivity where maybe you've got like geosynchronous satellite internet or you're working from, a, from an old DSL connection. 
you can't possibly participate in in what again what we all take for granted a zoom call like this or when i teach you know and my students go out to to their rural homes they can't participate in class they might have an internet connection but i think something that i've been talking a lot about is that like not all broadband is created equal and despite the fact that in federal policy it is all equal right just so long as it can get you to 253 it's considered broadband which is a, is a, is another major point of critique of the book but this idea that you know we really need to think about what connectivity will be like 5 10 15 20 years down the future and not what connectivity is now or what connectivity was 5 6 7 years ago when we created that 253 threshold so you know everybody needs the ability to to participate in in this digital world that we all take for granted and the more people who are on the network the better that's the network effect right the network improves when we've got people when we've got everybody connected you know chris you mentioned satellite and 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 the various technologies and i think anyone that works in this space knows that you know fiber connectivity is the gold standard but there's all of this talk and hype about 5g you talk about that in the in, in the book and there's been quite a bit of talk and hype and great marketing, I guess, around Starlink, you know, being, you know, connecting rural America. And so I can imagine there's folks out there that say, well, Starlink is here or is coming. So why worry about investing in broadband infrastructure in rural America, et cetera? So is Starlink the answer? Uh yeah, yes and no. And I, <laughs> that's kind of the easy way out, right? But here, here's my concern. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, both 5G and Starlink, and I think we can lump them together because of the hype around 5G and Starlink, right? Or Starlink, sorry. Um, two, three years ago, when I was working with some counties, all I was hearing is, well, maybe we'll pause our connectivity plans because 5G is just around the corner. Now the conversation is, well, maybe we'll pause our connectivity plans because Starlink is just around the corner. I think Starlink it sounds like it's, it's, it's a viable option, particularly for remote communities. And I'm learning more and more about how Elon Musk has kind of pivoted away from saying, we're going to provide broadband for everybody. Then it became, we're going to provide broadband for rural. And now it's, we're going to provide broadband for remote. So the, the you know, kind of the, either the eligibility or, or the goal of Starlink is shrinking. But I mean, you know, quite frankly, if Starlink can provide the connectivity in rural Appalachia, that would be fantastic. But I think that Starlink is just one possibility in a spectrum of possibilities that we have now. What worries me is when counties and communities and municipalities pause their digital strategies because they think Starlink is just around the corner because of the hype, right? And it, and it may be, but it also may not be. I mean, they're still in beta, right? They're still, they're still rolling things out. They're still application only. It is also still expensive, right? That, uh, that initial customer outlay a couple hundred dollars may not be feasible for a lot of folks. You know, again, I'm thinking rural Appalachia, rural, or like the islands of Maine or in, in, in Washington, those really hard to reach communities. And, and so I think Starlink should be considered as a possibility, but it, we, can't, we can't sacrifice all of this great planning that communities are doing in the hopes of, of Starlink coming and being this great savior. You know, in the book, I kind of I've likened it to the play Waiting for Godot, right? You might just end up waiting forever for nothing mm-hmm. um, because Starlink may not, may not be there. So, so I think communities need to empower themselves to, to keep moving forward with their digital connectivity plans and maybe keeping Starlink in mind as a possibility. Yeah, one of the, one of the things um, I liked about the book is that it's got a, a great high-level history of federal policy and programs for anyone who's interested. Thank you. Uh, and you, you say that federal dollars on rural broadband aren't being spent either efficiently or democratically. And I'm wondering if you can speak to one or both of those things with an example of how that plays out. 
For sure. I mean, part of the, you know, the main kind of high level question of the book is that how is it that we have, we, the federal government has subsidized broadband for at least eight years at about $8 billion a year, right? Between the FCC's high cost fund and the USDA money. And then even more, if you include the billions of dollars that the Recovery Act uh, allocated for broadband through BTOP and BIP, through NTIA's work and, and USDA's work. So billions and billions and billions of dollars have been spent. And yet the digital divide still exists is still worrisome, and in some cases might be growing as we kind of have some folks on DSL and satellite and others who are moving up to fiber. So we've got this greater divide here. So what I mean that that it hasn't, the money hasn't been spent efficiently, and uh, is that traditionally, particularly at the FCC, the money has just gone to the largest and the loudest providers, right? If you look at, you know, the Connect America Fund, phase one and phase two, several billion dollars. I mean, it just went to the 10 largest companies, right? They just said, here, we trust you to connect this country. That's not efficient. That's not an efficient way to deal with billions of dollars, nor is it democratic when we know, we know that local providers, be they co-ops, be they small regional providers, uh, be they municipal broadband providers, are, are the ones who are actually doing the on the ground connecting way more than the century links or the, or the horizons or the AT&Ts, right? So that's what I mean that it hasn't been efficient because it's been just going to these 10 largest companies. It also hasn't been efficient because the standards have been so low. I mean, this 25-3 threshold has basically allowed the existence of DSL, right? This, why do we have so much copper in the ground, right? Why aren't we incentivizing providers to rip up that copper and move to fiber or, uh, you know, at the very least fiber to the node. And, and we're just not seeing that because these policy thresholds have been so low that we've kind of grandfathered in all of these inadequate technologies. So that's where it hasn't been efficient. And then it hasn't been democratic because it, we just gave money to the 10 largest providers without really thinking, I think very carefully about who's actually doing a lot of the connecting. And a lot of the times, even back in 2015, right? It was, municipal providers were working through and of course cooperatives were working through this and they've really been shut out up until 2018 they were shut out of a lot of federal money particularly fcc universal service fund money they were a little bit better at, at usda but yeah really 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 shut out of that process so absolutely hasn't been efficient hasn't been democratic another of the consequences that you kind of track throughout the book is that you know with these huge providers frontier and CenturyLink taking hundreds of million, millions of dollars in federal subsidies a year, and then years down the road, reporting that they have been unable to uh, meet their broadband build-out requirements, leaving those communities you know, stranded for uh, connectivity options for e more years to come. Yeah, I mean, that to me is uh, one of the more vexing things and, and is a lack of accountability of where so much of this money has gone. And again, you know, CenturyLink kind of becomes one of the, the main antagonists, I guess you could say, in the book where they have received over $500 million a year through the Connect America Fund 2018, 2019, possibly even 2020, they, they have reported to the FCC that they have not met their build-out requirements. And not only have they not been punished or sanctioned or even a slap on the wrist, they were still eligible for more money through RDOF, right? So where's the accountability going here at the Federal Communications Commission? And, and hopefully we're, we're seeing maybe some more accountability accountability measures through RDOF, through asking winners to hand back some of their money, some of their, some of their spaces. So maybe we're starting to see some of that accountability, but I've got to be honest. I mean, even if you read the, the broadband component of the infrastructure plan, there's not a lot of accountability measures written in the law. So it's really going to be up to FCC, NTAA, USDA to enforce very stringent requirements. Otherwise, again, we run the risk of, of companies kind of gobbling up tons of money and then just saying, well, listen, we, we can't do what we promised. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. And then moving on. Right. 
Actually, you just said two things in the, in the last few minutes that I wanted to hit on. One of the things you mentioned were cooperatives. And I, one of the things that I find fascinating about your book is you get into the history of the Rural, Electric, Rural Electrification Act and how the federal government really intervened to bring electricity to rural America. And we're sort of in this moment of, you know, this question of the broadbandification of, of rural America. Yeah. And one of the things I think that both Ryan and I have written quite a bit about and have seen are just how well positioned electric and telephone cooperatives are to tackle these issues, just in terms of their experience of building and maintaining infrastructure. You know, they've got the poles and the crews, but they also have a different motive than 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 the private markets. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of electric and telephone co-ops in, in, in solving the digital divide? Sure thing. And and I would thank you, first of all, both for your writing, because you'll know if I don't know if you noticed in the work cited that I cite you both a lot. So it, it you know it's great to have this conversation. I mean, cooperatives to me are the unsung heroes of broadband, particularly in rural, rural communities. They operate, Sean, just like you said, on a different mindset, because they are not driven by quarterly profit returns to investors and shareholders, they can take a much longer view in terms of return on investment. I also think that because they're local, the accountability is different. I mean, when you run into folks in the grocery store or walking your dog down the street, that level of accountability, when someone says, hey, why don't I have broadband yet? Or why has my internet been out for two days? Or why is my bill so high? That that level of accountability is so different that you don't see with, with Comcast or Charter or, or Verizon, AT&T, CenturyLink. I mean, that's accountability from afar. This local accountability, I think, and, and kind of community service mindset of the cooperative has been so important. And I think this is why we're seeing so many, I mean, telephone cooperatives, we're kind of a natural inclination into broadband, but we're seeing also so many more electric cooperatives move into broadband, willing to take that long-term return on investment. And I don't want to put words into their mouth, but, you know, but thinking as an investment in the community rather than necessarily investment just for shareholders or investors. And, and, and this is what makes me so excited about talking about, about cooperatives because we're really able to feel and to see that long-term investment in, in rural communities kind of play out in real time. Just like happened, you know, in the 1930s with electrification and cooperatives, the 1940s, 1950s with telephone cooperatives. I mean, they got the job done when AT&T failed, when big power failed in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. So again, unsung heroes of, of rural broadband, absolutely. All right, we'll get to the next question in just a minute, but first we're going to take a short break. Thanks for listening to Building Local Power. If you're enjoying our conversation with Chris Ali, I hope you'll consider heading over to ilsr.org donate to help support us. Your donation makes this podcast possible, as well as all the work we do here at ILSR. You can visit ilsr.org donate to make a contribution today. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. I also want to take a moment to plug Chris's new book, Farm Fresh Broadband. Go check it out. And with that, let's go back to the conversation. One other thing that you mentioned also is the infrastructure bill, um, bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed the Senate. It contains the $65 billion for the expansion of broadband access, I guess, because $42 billion of it is going to be, as it's currently written, shipped to the, sent to the states and for broadband networks deployment. And then there's you know money in there for various other things, digital inclusion and what have you. I got to say that, you know, one of the things and your book is important because it makes the case for why connecting rural America is, is important. One of the disappointments, I think, for myself and others with the broadband infrastructure bill 
among other things, and there's a lot in there, and and there's it's a it's a it's a mixed bag. Well, that one of the good things is that instead of the FCC, where there's no accountability, handing out the money, that it's one step closer to the to to the lo localities who have the best sense of where where broadband needs exist, and so this money will be given to the states. But it talks about defining unserved as areas that lack access to 25.3. And, and the bill basically says it ex that this money should be exclusively spent on those areas and only until you can prove that every area in your state has at least 25.3, only then can you spend money on underserved areas, et cetera. And so it seems like it's a major investment that's going to focus most of the infrastructure investment in rural regions because pretty much everybody has access to 25.3, theoretically, networks. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the infrastructure bill and if you see this as a watershed moment for investing, particularly in, in rural America and in infrastructure there. I think you hit it on the on the nose when you said you know it's a mixed bag. I, I'm, I'm certainly not going to scoff at 65 billion. I was disappointed that there was a compromise. The original promise, of course, being 100 billion. I, for one, was kind of on board with the SEC's 2017 report that said you know we need 80 billion to connect the country with high speed broadband. When I testified before the Senate, that's what I said we needed, and that's the best report I cited. I'm certainly not going to scoff at 42 billion for deployment. Couple of things, yeah. I was disappointed that unserved was defined as twenty-five-three. I was also a little disappointed that underserved was a hundred or one hundred twenty. I think that asymmetry reflects, or it's potentially reflective of the cable lobby, right? Because cable can't provide um, symmetric coverage. I, I, I'm a big proponent of a hundred, one hundred as kind of baseline. Sorry, I just want to jump in for a second to explain why symmetric is important to people, just in case. Oh, right. Yeah, so when we're, when we're throwing out all these numbers, we're talking about megabits per second. And, and right now we have an asymmetric definition of broadband, right? With 25 megabits per second download, three megabits per second upload. As it was described to me and how I talk about it in the book is that download is really about consumption, right? It's about binging your Netflix. It's about streaming. It's about social media. You know, all, all the things that we kind of do on a daily basis. Upload is about production. Upload is about business. At three megabits per second, you're struggling for a Zoom conversation, let alone if you need to up upload terabytes worth of data. Doctors, for instance, can't upload high-resolution x-rays at three megabits per second, right? So we really need to be thinking about a much higher upload speed. The 120 gets us there, but the question is not what can we do today, it's what could we possibly do we do in five or 10 years? What will upload speeds need? And if we're kind of stuck at this asymmetric, this 120, what are we missing out on? And that's one of the hard things to predict is like, what are, you know, what's the future going to hold? But if we, if we liken it to electricity, my mind is like, well, we didn't just say, well, a house can have one light bulb. You've got electricity, you've got one light bulb, right? We connected a house. And uh, the, you know, the same thing here is like, we're not just saying, well, you can have you know, one computer connected or just enough internet to get through your daily, daily work. But we, we need that high performance broadband. And, and uh, that's why I was a big proponent of, of 100, 100. Back to the infrastructure package. I like the idea of it going to states. One of my concerns, you know, through NTIA, of course, but one of, one of my concerns is not every state has a broadband office. Not every state has a robust broadband office. I would have loved to have seen language in there that says for states to get money, they need to establish a broadband office. I have found, I mean, Pew Foundation found this as well, right? The importance of state broadband offices, and, and, and you all know this in, in Minnesota, 
I don't think can be understated the importance of state broadband offices, well-funded, well-staffed state broadband offices. So I would like to see, I would like to see that. Is this a potential watershed moment for rural broadband? Um, yes, I don't think we're going to be able to connect everybody at 42 billion. It's just, it's just not enough, but a lot of people will get connected with this. A lot of good will hopefully happen with this money. So I'm not going to let the expression, look a gift horse in the mouth. But, you know, we're going to have to see when the rules come out, because the, the allocation of the money was a little vague. There's not a lot of rulemaking around there. So we, we got to see what NTA is going to propose in terms of its actual rulemaking. But again, I would love to see more robust state broadband offices that act as information clearinghouses, that act as grants. I mean, because we're going to have a lot of money coming down the pipe. So we need to make sure that money is spent well. The other, the other thing I might add is, in the Recovery Act, when NTIA and USDA got those billions of dollars, one of the main concerns was, do they actually have the staff at those offices to be able to administer such money? That was one of the major critiques, particularly of the rural utility service, is that they just didn't have the personnel. And so people were making super fast decisions and sometimes bad decisions. Sometimes money went to failed projects. We also need to make sure that NTIA is well-staffed and well-equipped to be able to handle you know, $42 billion passing through its doors. I got a little nervous when I saw NTA call for volunteers for program <laughs> review. I'd love to see that staffed and staffed appropriately rather than relying on outside volunteers. So there's a lot, there's a lot of good that can happen, but there's a lot of, of scaffolding that needs to happen, I think, before this money gets out. And of course, the other thing is mapping we need to improve. The other thing that I was glad to see and yet disappointed at the same time, you know, 14 billion for affordability is fantastic. I would have liked the, the subsidy number to remain at $50 a month rather than the reduction to $30 a month. And, and maybe this is something the FCC can tackle if we bring back net neutrality or, and Title II regulation, which is that do we need to mandate that providers have a low cost option that meets the $30, so it's less than $30. To me, it goes, that should go hand in hand, whatever, how much we're going to subsidize should be the mandated low cost option. That's a question for the FCC, of course, because it wasn't in the legislation. We could spend hours on this, but one of the things, too, that I thought was a, a, a bit disappointing about the Senate passing this bipartisan infrastructure bill is that it has been quite watered down from what I we were initially excited when, when, when Biden announced that he wanted to do this. As it related to broadband, there was a lot of talk about how localities and municipalities and cooperatives were going to be given a funding preferences, and that is missing in, in this particular infrastructure bill. So that is a bit disappointing. I, I think Chris would probably agree. Definitely. That, I would definitely agree. I was just, like, I was so excited when it was that White House fact sheet, right, on the American Jobs Plan. Holy smokes, local, nonprofit, cooperatives, $100 billion, future-proof. Yes, that's the kind of ambition we need. And then we see it get kind of watered down and through compromise, political compromise into kind of 65 billion for nondescript entities. I mean, I certainly noted the language that I said municipalities were not excluded and cooperatives were not excluded. So um, that was good, but definitely it took a little wind out of, out of my sales. And, and Sean, it sounds like it took a little wind out of your sales too, to see the final text. Yes, indeed. It does seem like that's a that's a huge change to even see that kind of language coming from the White House in the first place. I mean, you know, obviously, this federal politics, things are going to get watered down. But do you feel like there has been a significant shift just in the sense that, like, there's a tension on 
these local projects and and different ways of thinking about policy rather than just complete domination from the big monopolies? Has that actually shifted or are we still very much kind of in in Comcast thrall? <laughs> a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I think that you're quite right, Jess, that for, for the president to have included cooperatives, localities, nonprofits, even within this original messaging was a big win. It's a big acknowledgement. I think time and time again, municipalities, nonprofits, cooperatives have proven that they can make the connections and the connectivity possible where the the traditional private investment-driven market has absolutely failed in doing it. So I think who's you know who's ever advising the president on these matters has done a good job. But this is not a time for those of us who who champion local nonprofit cooperative to get complacent. There's still a lot of work to do. Particularly around the, the particularly around the rules, big telco, big cable has has this it's kind of insidious way of gobbling up a lot of well-intentioned money, and I think it's you know we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. And again, going back to Rai, your question about efficiency and 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 dem- democratically distributed funding, you know this is where we really need to stay on top of things, or else we're just going to see big money go to big cable and big telco without that kind of accountability that we all that we all hope for. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic, maybe this is the Canadian in me, but I'm optimistic that we're seeing a little bit of the tide change in terms of in terms of towards kind of what at one point were alternative providers to to the to the big players. But it's definitely still going to be a fight. I also think that like NTCA and, and the NRECA has done a great job in, in working with their members. Particularly, I think the electric cooperatives have done a good job in, in instilling the value of retail broadband to maybe some uh, electric utility cooperatives that were hesitant at first. I'm seeing like a lot more movement there. And I think that's great. And they've proven, like I said, time and time again, that they can get the job done. So now, now we just got to fight for the right for money. This is a book that's about local success in the face of federal policy failures or shortcomings when, you know, stakeholders get together and local officials roll up their sleeves and start get, getting to work. I'm wondering if you can just take a couple minutes and tell us about Rock County and the cooperative and what happened with the county seat of Luverne and the results of that kind of endeavor that started unfolding in the last 10 years. Yeah, for sure. So Rock County knew back in the late, is the expression aughts, right? 2008, 2009, that they, 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 they understood again through the county administrator, Kyle Older, that Broadband was kind of the wave of the future for economic development, for education, for health in, in in their county. They also had an opportunity to get on board with some Recovery Act money. That didn't work, unfortunately. And then they really pivoted to wanting fiber to the home and weren't going to compromise on anything less. That's that's what their community said they wanted. And that's what their digital champion said they needed. So they were going with that. The hardest thing for them was finding that provider to do it for them. And this is something I'm seeing time and time again, particularly in Virginia, where there might be some money available and there's certainly the will available, but the, the dance partner finding that provider was and remains incredibly difficult. And again, uh, this is where cooperatives can, can, can step up and do that provision. So Rock County found Advanced Communications, which is in South Dakota, which was already operating in a couple of towns in the county, kind of just right on the border. And they, they created an entity known as Rock County Alliance. There's literally a rock, an engraved rock in the county seat of Laverne in the courthouse commemorating the Rock County Alliance. And there's a picture of it in the book. So they formed a Minnesota-based company. And by doing that, they were able to tap into Minnesota grants. They won the largest grant. I think it might be ever awarded for broadband in Minnesota, $5 million. 
I think the the riskiest thing, or at least when I was hearing the story, the riskiest thing they did was bond themselves for a million dollars. And, and you know, this is a, a county of 10,000 people. So to bond yourself for a million dollars, that's, that's a huge gamble on your future. And then advanced communications put up the rest of the money. So I think the entire project cost 12 million. They came in right on budget. And then Laverne, because it was already served technically with two cable providers, it actually had to get left out of the provision. So Laverne kind of became this, this island in a sea of fiber, this island without fiber in the sea of fiber. And the last time I talked to the general manager of advanced communications, they were going to roll out into Laverne on their own dime because of course they would be a competitor. So they can't get a, a subsidy for that. I use the word competitor and not the word overbuilder because I hate the word overbuilder, but they were a competitor in Laverne. And so they've moved in now and are just offering retail as, as competition on kind of unsubsidized. And again, I think this is like really great about cooperatives is that they saw, you know, they didn't wait for that subsidy. They knew they wouldn't be able to get subsidized for Laverne, but they saw a need and they, they filled it kind of this wall to wall coverage. And again, now, now you've got raw County, being one of, if it was when I was doing my research, it was the most connected county in the state of Minnesota. I haven't looked at recent Minnesota maps, so I don't know if that's still true, but back in 2019, 2020, they, they were absolutely the most connected county. And then they got a grant from the Blandin Foundation to do digital equity and digital inclusion work. And that was done through the library. So like, what an amazing local story here. And, and everything about it was local from the local digital champions to the provider, to the people, to the library. I mean, it's broadband localism at its finest. I know we're, we're, we're probably uh, running out of time. One of the things I'm just going to say, and you don't necessarily need to speak on, I was totally fascinated by the part of your book that talks about precision agriculture and the various technologies that really require this kind of reliable, high-speed, high-performing internet connectivity. That, that, that it's, it's fascinating. But the other thing that I found really fascinating, and maybe this is maybe something that you want to speak to, is um, you have a very nuanced discussion in the book about what is rural America and what isn't rural America and the tendency to sort of romanticize certain things, et cetera, and just how important, though, it is to connect rural America, not, not, not the least of which because of you know, things like precision ag- agriculture and, and things of that nature and the importance of, of, of these things to the rural economy. But just kind of maybe pulling that lens back, this book does focus on connecting rural America, but I just, the analysis and the discussion that you have made me think so much about my own, you know, made me question my own assumptions about what I consider to be rural America and who makes it up and, and the kind of issues that they're dealing with in, in rural America. So I don't know, that might be, you know, I, I guess just sort of invite you to sort of just maybe talk to us a little bit about what is rural America? Who's in it? Sure. You know, and, and that's that's such a great question, Sean, because I, I think so many of us who who don't live in, in rural America, and I'm kind of like halfway, I live in a town of 40,000 people, but it is not that bucolic farm pasture, necessarily these open spaces, right? It is so much more diverse. It is so much more eclectic. It's so, so much more dynamic. And I think by kind of reducing rural entirely and this is what i say in the book if we reduce rural entirely to like an agricultural community we're really doing it a disservice it is it is a lot more diverse it has it has a lot more unique challenges it's also i will say i think we also might have a tendency and and this was certainly true i think during the trump administration to reduce rural america to a place of whiteness whereas rural america is in fact more diverse 
the highest immigration rates were into rural communities. And so we're seeing the changing face of rural America, literally the changing face of rural America and the diversification of rural America. I also think that it's not a zero-sum game to write a book, I'm going on a tangent here, about rural America and about rural broadband. It does not negate the importance of urban broadband, tribal broadband, you know, low-cost broadband, broadband for education. I mean, this was just one one piece of a much larger broadband ecosystem that we need to tackle simultaneously. But I was really surprised. In, in 2019, I wrote a piece for the New York Times talking about the need for broadband for rural America. And amidst a bunch of emails of people who, who liked the piece, there were also quite a lot of people complaining of why I would champion rural America. Why aren't they just well, a bunch of Republicans they, or people who chose to live in rural America, it's their fault for living in rural America. So I was getting like a lot of, a lot of complaints, a lot of criticism for, for saying this. But again, if we reduce rural America to these kind of false essential qualities, we're doing such a disservice to these really amazing communities. And, and so hopefully what the book does is kind of dispel some of these myths and, and maybe encourage people to go to rural America. We've certainly seen during the pandemic, people are moving outside of cities into more rural communities. But one thing they're not thinking about asking about is broadband, because we just assume there's connectivity. I'm, I'm going a little all over the place here. But suffice it to say that the part of the point of the book was to dispel some of these myths and essentializations that we might have about rural communities. And, and hopefully, hopefully it's done that job, at least a little bit, maybe. Thank you so much, Christopher. That's really great. And I would encourage all listeners to check out the book. Again, it's called Farm Fresh Broadband. Um, Chris, if, if there's anything else you want to say about the book, where can folks find it? Or if there's any other resources you want to point people towards? Yeah, I mean, the, the book can be found online with most book retailers, including including Amazon, MIT Press, Penguin Random House, Barnes & Noble. I mean, they'll all carry it. Probably won't be found in a lot of local bookstores, although if any local bookstores are listening to this podcast, they can, they can certainly stock the book. And people can also find me on, on Twitter or feel free to reach out on email. I love hearing people's stories about broadband. I love it. I love getting emails. I love getting tweets about this. So who's ever listening, please don't be shy to share your story and would love to you know, keep this conversation going. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you to you, Christopher. And thanks, John and Rai, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having Glad me. To be here. Thank you. That was Jess Delfiaco. Sean Gonsalves, Christopher Ali, and me, Rai Marcatilio McCracken. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle's at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle's at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 473 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.